0: And in that, to John chapter 12, for the last time. John 12, verses 44 through 50, page 899 in the Pew Bible. This is the end of the first part of the book, the book of signs. This is a summary of the first part of the book, the whole book, which is the book of life. We cannot attempt a summary of the first part of the book, Without first reviewing John's summary purpose statement for the whole book. What's the point of all this? Why are we here? What's, why is this book given to us? 2031. John wrote, So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. There's the whole book right there. Shakespeare is correct that brevity is the soul of wit then that is a masterfully witty and intelligent statement it covers everything and it covers everything all in four main words you believe Christ life you believe Christ life that's John's gospel again and again and again in these first 12 chapters John has done everything that he can to repeatedly and clearly communicate to you. Christ is life. How do you get the Christ who is life? How do you live? Believe. And so again and again and again in these first 12 chapters, John has done everything he can to repeatedly and clearly communicate to you what such living belief or faith truly is. And he does so, again, for us here in verses 44 through 50. As we open up with Christ, we close with life. And in the middle, we find some important teaching on what the belief that results in life is and does. Let's be honest. There's nothing new in these verses. There is nothing that hasn't already been said. But you've looked at the points probably. You're like, all right, well, this is not for me. I can check out. I've got this one down. But... Unless you had a perfect week. Sinless gladness, rejoicing always, loving the Lord, loving your neighbor perfectly. Anyone? Anyone in here? No? Thank you. Me neither. Well, that means you need this. If you, like me, struggled with sin this week, if you struggled with doubt, or discouragements with grumpiness, or with anger, or with loneliness, or simple loss of perspective, or kind of whatever the gamut of our struggles are, well, then you need this. John repeats himself a lot. John repeats himself a lot. The Bible repeats itself a lot. And that's because God knows us. And He loves us. And he knows that we forget a lot. We've proven that this last week. And so he regularly and repeatedly reminds us. Philippians 3.1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Romans 15.15, Paul writes by way of reminder, 2 Peter 1.12, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. I always wondered if Peter is copying Paul there. I don't know. I have no idea. But they say the same thing. And so I always intend to stir you up by way of reminder, to write and speak the same things to you. And those things are Christ crucified. Those things are the glory of Christ, the sight of which is life. I am still having to strive to convince myself, and thus I believe probably still having to convince you that Christ really and truly and literally is life. I started a book on Thursday. I'll mention it tonight. Uh, Come to the evening service at 5 but the book is titled The Attention Merchants. The Attention Merchants. It's about how everything on the internet, everything on that phone in your pocket, on that social media that you're wasting your life with, all of it exists to capture and commodify your attention. And then it exists to then profit off of that attention. And so the, the subtitle of the book is The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads. That's excellent. It's a good title. And in the introduction, the author Tim Wu writes this. He says, when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to, whether by choice or by default. Our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to. What are you paying attention to? For what you pay attention to is everything. What you give your time and attention, your mind and your money, your look and your love determines your life. We are seeking every Sunday to give attention to that which is of first importance. We are seeking to set our look and our love on Christ and we are scrambling to get his word inside our heads. And since our attention is so important, we come back to him again and again and again, to be reminded of how good and how glorious this Christ is. And maybe one day by the grace of God we'll really start to believe it and live like it and finally find our attention and our affection truly captured by Christ. Have you seen Him for truly is who He truly is? Do you value Him above all else? Does He have your attention? I'm going to argue that's in part what it means To believe. To give Him our complete attention and allegiance and affection. And so, drawing to a close the first part of the book, John is attempting to draw your attention once again to Christ. And so John here summarizes his person and summarizes his message. Let's keep it simple. This is a summary review section. Let's just walk through it and answer three simple questions from this concluding Text. This text is about Jesus. Question number one. Well, who really is this Jesus? This text tells us a lot in a little. Question number two. This text is about faith. All right. Well, what is faith? There's a lot we can learn about it just in these verses. And then let's bring it in to the end. Let's look at the stakes. Why must you believe? As Christ is then going to turn to talk about judgment and the end in life. So who is Jesus? What is faith? Why must you believe? Believe. We are seeking to see the eternal importance of a true, living, growing, personal faith in Christ, who is life that thus then affects our whole life. We want to give him our attention. let's read. We give him our attention first through his word. So pay attention. John 12, I'll read for you verses 40 through 4 through 50. This is God's word, the word that we're about to read that will judge us on the last day. John 12, verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. on the last day for I have not spoken on my own authority but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak and I know that his commandment is eternal life what I say therefore I say as the father has told me if you would bow with me let's go to the father let's uh, ask for his help let's let's pray Speak, Lord, we have asked in song, so we ask in prayer, we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. Father, we ask that you would show us that which is of first importance. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the Christ who is life. Help us to fix our attention upon him Help us to pay attention to our attention. We pray that you would bring our attention back when it drifts and wanders. Father, I pray that my attention would not be on myself or my performance or my glory. I pray that it would be on you and on Christ. I pray that our attention would not be on our day or what's to come or uh, anything else. Father, capture our attention with Christ. Show us who He is and all His goodness and glory. Draw us to Him. Show us what it means to believe and trust and to live in Him. And Father, may we find life in your Christ in this time. Speak, O Lord, we ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, point number one, nice and simple, who is Jesus? The most important question anyone can ever be asked. Matthew 16, 15, but who do you say that I am? If Jesus somehow were to come around individually to every single one of us and ask, well, who do you say that I am? I wonder how we would answer on the spot. You know that I care a lot about doctrine. I know that I am struggling to communicate the importance of all of us caring a lot about doctrine. For for doctrine is simply teaching. It's, It's truth. It's theology. And the word theology literally means words about God. We're going to look in a moment again at the importance of words. But, but doctrine is so important because it's about the God who is so important. The God whom knowing is eternal life. And so we should greatly care about knowing him truly and not falsely. Knowing God is more than knowing about God, but it is not less. It starts with knowing about God. And if that's the case... Well, then it seems that much of the evangelical world is in trouble. Who is Jesus? It seems a simple, obvious question, especially for us in church, evangelical Christians. Ligonier Ministries, uh, the ministry started by the late R.C. Sproul. You should use their stuff, listen and read to R.C. Sproul's books. They just put out what they call their state of theology Survey. What they do every year, or maybe it's every two years, is they, they poll a bunch of people who identify themselves as evangelicals. They give them a couple of basic statements, and then they simply ask them if they agree or disagree with that statement. They're trying to get a read on what evangelicals believe about Christianity and the faith and, and the word. For example, statement 26 says quite simply abortion is a sin. Agree. Or disagree, right? That's that's the question. 91% of evangelicals agree. That's not that's actually not too bad as these survey things go. You have to wonder about the 9%. No, 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 murdering humans is not a sin, but but still, 91% is, is fairly solid. Things go quickly downhill from there. Our point is, who is Jesus? One of the statements in the survey, number seven, says, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Agree or disagree? If you get that wrong, I'm just going to walk out and quit. I'm going to quit right now, if you guys get that one wrong. But 43% of professing evangelicals agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Number six, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, agree or disagree. Some of you aren't sure. (laughs) 73% of evangelicals agreed with the statement that Jesus is created by God. We have a problem there, church. Statement number three, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Agree or disagree. 56% well over half of professing evangelicals agreed that God accepts the worship of all religions even those religions that explicitly deny that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Who is Jesus? It seems like a lot of people aren't so sure. A lot of people who profess to be Christians aren't so sure. And just to be clear, spoiler alert, jumping ahead to point three, you cannot deny that Christ is God and be saved. Knowing God is eternal life. That starts with knowing about God. How do we know about God? What can we know about God? Well, let's get to the text. Look at it. You can learn a lot about him just from these few short verses. When we start with a text, we always start with the context. You can't really understand a text without the context in which it is situated. And so as you look over the text, what do you think is the context? What's the setting? What's the context of this text? Good question. If you figure it out, let me know, because I am not sure. I have said that this section is John summarizing and reviewing. Look back up at the middle of verse 36. Remember verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. The end. We argue that that was the end of Jesus' public ministry to the crowds there in verse 36. So, most likely, verses 37 through 50 are not episodes that, that follow that chronologically, it's unlikely that our passage is Jesus like coming back up out of hiding from departing and then crying out one last time. Now, most people understand these verses to be from sometime earlier in Jesus' ministry that John is taking, it's historical, it's true, it happened, but John is taking it and putting it here to serve as a summary and review of the main ideas of Jesus' ministry. And I think it's pretty interesting what John chooses to emphasize. If you had to summarize Christ in chapters 1 through 12, I wonder what you would choose to highlight. Notice what John goes out of his way to highlight. Who is Jesus? We'll look at verse 44. It's a bit strange at first. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me. If we just stopped there, it would be very confusing. What are you talking about, Jesus? We'll keep reading but believes in him who sent me. And he does it again. Look at verse 45. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Skip down to verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. Into verse 50. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You see what John keeps repeating and emphasizing? John is emphasizing one thing in these closing and concluding summary words. The absolute oneness of the Father and the Son. He's emphasizing Jesus' absolute focus on and commitment to the Father and the mission of the Father. Who is Jesus? We learn a ton from just these seven verses, but the first thing we learn is that He is the Son of God. Twice in verses 49 and 50, He talks of the Father. They did not do this in the Old Testament. Jews in the Old Testament did not speak individually and personally of God as Father. Here comes Christ, the Father, the Father, the Father. He is the Son of God. Second, just from these verses, we see that He is the sent one. Three times, verse 44, 45, and 49, Jesus talks about Him, God the Father, who sent me. He's emphasizing His his sentness. He is the revealer of God. Verse 45, whoever sees me, sees Him who sent me. So He reveals God to us. He is the way to God. Verse 44, whoever believes in me, believes in him who sent me. So you can't believe in him without believing in Christ. He's the way to God. Verse 46, he's the light of God. Uh, He is the word of God. Verse 47, 48, 49, 50. The, The point is he's everything. He's everything. Just in these short summary verses, John brings so much together about the identity of this Christ. He is one with God. He is God. And this is the burden of this book. To reveal to the world of darkness and death the One who is light and life. The One who in the very first words of the book is revealed to be the Word of God. Who was both in some mysterious way with God and was God. And even in our verses here, we're seeing the distinctness of the persons, me, him who sent me, the son and the father. And yet we're seeing the absolute unity of essence and mission. You see me, you see him. You believe in me, you're believing in him. So there's this distinctness and this unity in essence. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. You can't see God. The only God who is at the father's side. That is the Son. He has made him known. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God, one with God, the only one who makes God known. The only one by whom we can see God. What is God like? Look at Jesus. And John beats this drum again and again and again. Repetition and reminder. Chapter 5 was all about this big idea. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter 5, Jesus says this, My father is working until now, and I am working. And we kind of look at that like, okay, that's, that's a nice claim. The Jews understood what he was saying. Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This claims of oneness and unity with the Father, the Jews recognized this was a claim to be God, to be equal with God. Chapter 5, verse 23, who does, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Chapter 8, 19, he said, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. Clear 14:6, I am the way and the truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, one with God, revealer of God, sent by God to be the only way to God. To do what? What else does he say in our text? Go back to chapter 12. Goes, look at verse 46. He tells us not just about his person. He keeps saying, I'm sent, I'm sent, I'm sent. He tells us why. Verse 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. End of verse 47. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So now we see Jesus, the Son of God, one with God, revealer of God, way to God, sent of God to be the light and Savior of the world. That's who Jesus is. And again, that's everything. In verse 41, we saw that Isaiah saw Christ's glory, the showing and the shining forth of Christ's perfection, His his greatness, His beauty. He's the perfect person, perfect in beauty, perfect in goodness, perfect in love. Glory is what every single one of us are looking for. We're all looking for something bigger than us, something worth living for, something that can draw us and drive us and define us. It's found only in God. And God is found only in Christ. And he says that no one comes to God, comes to the Father except through him. 17.3 Knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent is eternal life. So We better get Jesus right. That means that affirming that Jesus is a great teacher but not God is denying Jesus. That means that affirming that Jesus is the best being created by God is denying Jesus. That means that affirming that God accepts the worship of religions that deny the Son is denying Jesus. Who is Jesus? There's no more important question. And Do you know all of this about this Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God? The revealer of God. The way to God. The God of all glory and grace. For faith in this Jesus is first a right knowledge of this Jesus. And so we have to start there. But what else is it? Point number two. Let's keep moving. Well, what is faith? If that's who Christ is, what does it actually mean to have faith in Him? Back to the beginning of our text. Look at verse 44. Again, we see something unique there actually. There are only five times in all the Gospels where Christ cries out. Two of them are on the cross in Matthew and Mark. He cries out from the cross. The other three are all in John. We've already seen the first two. The first was chapter 7, verse 37, at the Feast of Tabernacles, where Christ cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Then he goes on to talk about living waters and, and life. And then the second, what was chapter 11, verse 43, at the tomb of Lazarus, where Christ cries out, Lazarus, dead Lazarus, decaying, stinking, rotting Lazarus, come out. And he does. The man who had died lived and walks out of the tomb. And now we hear and see the, the fifth And final cry, whoever believes in me. And then this passage is going to go on to conclude with life. So Christ cries out five times. Two are at his death. The other three are all about life. As it is his death that secures our life. And it is there that we see Christ most clearly. It is there that we find faith's focus in the glory of Christ revealed in the death of Christ on the cross that we might live. But for now, our point is simple. that The the cry is significant. The fact that there are so few times that Jesus does this means, hey, pay pay attention to this and and what he says. This is important. And it is a cry. It is a command to believe. To believe in him, and in so doing, believe in God the Father. Believe. That's what faith is faith is belief belief is faith remember some try and draw a distinction between belief and faith and to say that they're different things the bible draws no such distinction they're, they're, they're synonymous it's all one word in the greek pastuo to believe we just don't have any sort of faith verb in english maybe we should create one so we don't have a faithing thing So belief equals faith. Uh, To have faith is to believe all the same. But biblically, we talk about this a lot, but I think it's important. Biblically, belief may be something other than and more than we tend to think that it is. Many of us grew up in the context of revivals and sinners' prayers and inviting Jesus into your heart. I still don't know what that means. And invitations. I see that hand. I see that hand. And, and walking the aisle. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Will you repeat this prayer after me? Yes. Boom. You're a Christian. Welcome to the kingdom. There are few things that have harmed the church more in the last hundred years than this nonsense. It's nonsense. Repeating the sinner's prayer is not faith. The idea that you can say some magic words and be saved is not faith. It is silly superstition, and it has caused much harm. I repeated that prayer hundreds, if not thousands, of times in my childhood to no avail, in part because I had such a deficient understanding of both Christ and who he is and of faith. Faith is so much more than believing that. It's so much more than agreeing with some truths about Jesus and then repeating a magic prayer. Look at verse 44 again. Grammar review. I was losing some of you, so I brought you back with grammar review. Now you're attending, paying attention to me. Grammar. Joking. Wake up. Sometimes. Sometimes. Remember, the smallest words are the biggest. Prepositions. Prepositions connect or relate a word to other words. Look at the verse. You see a verb, believes, and you see a noun, me. In, in the middle, is the preposition. It links the two. Believes in me. But I believe that this is important, and I've pointed this out. In the Greek, the preposition is not in. It can mean in sometimes. But this is not the normal Greek preposition for in. We talk about Christians being those who are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That is the Greek preposition in. In the Greek it's spelled E-N. It means in. We are E-N Christ. This is not that word in John 12.44. Pull up your Greek. Go check it. And in fact, the in word is never used in the New Testament following the word believe. It never says believe in, ever. Verse 44, the Greek says this, believe, pistuo," not N-E-N, but believe is, E-I-S. And ice does not mean in, as much as that means into, or toward, or upon. The King James does better here, and the King James goes with on. He that believeth on me. That's better than in, at least. Ice is a movement word. It's a preposition denoting movement. Uh, denoting entrance into or motion into, implying penetration, movement, motion. And that's so much more helpful to me, at least. That that helps us much better understand what faith really is. It is not just belief in or about Jesus. Faith, by the grace of God, is movement toward, motion into, entrance into, Christ so just from this tiny little preposition we're getting a hint that faith is so much bigger and better and more comprehensive and consuming than we think yes it is believing that you have to believe rightly about who Jesus is but then necessarily it is also a trusting in that Christ and I think that's the part that we often miss Faith is often taught as consisting of those three components that we've talked about. K-A-T, you can remember uh, uh, faith as K-A-T, knowledge, assent, and trust. Right? It's, it's knowledge about, that's often uh, where we stop. Assent is agreeing that it's true. Um, but then the trust, the reliance, the personal dependence on God's grace in Jesus Christ. There's no biblical faith without the trusting into Jesus Christ. Here's the 1689. Here's how it defines it. The grace of faith. So, first off, faith is a grace. Faith is God's gift to us. Ephesians 2 is very, very clear. It is not what you do, it is God's gift to you. The grace of faith by which the elect are enabled to believe so that their souls are saved is the work of the Spirit of Christ. In their hearts, ordinarily produced by the ministry of the word. Skipping to paragraph two, by faith Christians believe to be true, everything revealed in the word. Skipping ahead, focus here. Here's what I want you to get. The principal act of saving faith focuses directly on Christ. Attention. Faith is attention. The principal act of saving faith focuses directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. The principal act of faith. This is what faith is. This is what faith does. It focuses directly on Jesus Christ. It gives attention to Him, accepts, receives, rests, and trusts in Him. That's faith. Faith is a settled trust, solidly rooted in God's revealed Word, that then affects the whole of our life. It's it's a whole-souled trust in the whole Christ. Faith is so, so important that we've got, just like we have to get Christ right, we've got to make sure we get faith right. The Shorter Catechism says, Faith in Jesus is a saving grace by which we receive and rest on Him alone. Heidelberg Catechism. What is faith? It's not only a sure knowledge, it's also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel. There's the knowledge and the trust. Last definition, and I'll leave you alone, but I've always loved Luther's definition. Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. So certain. Faith is a certainty. So certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace. Do you have faith? Catch this part. Such knowledge and confidence of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. You see, a living, bold, certain trust in this God of all glory and grace, this confidence will necessarily result in making us happy and joyful and restful in Him. Faith is a whole-souled trust in the whole Christ that affects the whole of life. That's what it means to believe in Him. That's what it means to trust Him. The old Sunday school acrostic is pretty solid. Faith means forsaking all I take him. Right? Forsaking all I take him. That's faith. It's taking Christ before all else. Trusting Christ above all else. From our text in verse 44, we see it's trustful belief. From verse 45, we see that it's seeing him. From verse 47, we see that it's hearing and keeping his word the main thing that I want you to see is how absolutely Christ-focused faith is. Faith is all attention on Christ. And what I want you to see is that you cannot believe and see and hear this Christ, the all-glorious Christ of point one, in all His goodness and beauty. You cannot move toward Him and be united to Him in faith. And not at least be... Somewhat changed. I had profoundly transformed. Let's be realistic. Not at least be somewhat changed. Contact with such a person transforms your person. Union with the life changes and transforms your life. But that then raises the question. Why are so many of us so little transformed? If Christ is so good... If faith is an attentive connection union with him and he's so good, what's the disconnect? Why do we so struggle to see and believe and rejoice and be happy? Well, to answer that question, let me raise another question. Let's back up for a moment. I skipped two verses last week. In part, I skipped them because they're tricky, two verses. That's cheating, though. We don't get to ignore difficult verses, but I skipped them in part because they fit so well with this week. Yes, also because I just ran out of time and I'm terrible at preaching, Um, but God is gracious and this can hopefully help us better understand and appreciate true faith. Jesus has said, whoever believes in me in verse 44, this is the summary of Christ's ministry. This is a review of belief and the right response to that ministry. Jump back up to verse 37 Here was the summary of the crowd's response to Christ's ministry. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Seeing is not believing. Now look at verse 42. Here's what we skipped. The crowd didn't believe. They did not believe. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed, there's our word, in him, But for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Stop. Don't read verse 43. Don't read it. Stop reading. Here's the question. Did these many authorities believe? It's a stupid question you say. It says many of the authorities believed. Okay, how about this? Did they believe and live? Did they savingly believe? Was it a true, living, biblical faith in Christ? And that's actually a really good question. If we only had verse forty two, I would be inclined to believe that theirs is a true and saving belief. But we don't only have verse forty two. Now keep reading. Verse forty three is an important verse. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Listen, I'm I'm not going to be too dogmatic about this. There's disagreement about this. So I'm, I'm open to being wrong here. I'd love to argue with you afterwards. Try and convince me. But in light of verse 43, I don't see how there's any way the faith of verse 42 is true saving faith. Remember, John has done this a number of times Throughout the book, starting all the way back in chapter 2, John goes out of his way to show us that there is such a thing as a th- that looks like faith It is not faith. There is such a thing as a false faith, a belief that or a belief about Jesus that is not actually a saving belief into Jesus Christ. And that has to be what's going on here. For you cannot love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God and actually know the all-glorious God through His all-glorious Son. Jesus has already answered this riddle for us. Back in chapter 5, verse 44, if you want to look at it there. Here's the answer to what this faith is in 42 and 43. Chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You can't, he's saying. he's saying. You cannot believe in me if you are seeking and receiving the glory that comes from man. And now here in our passage, we see these men loving the glory of man more than the glory of God. And according to Christ's own words in 544, they can't be savingly believing in Christ, Matthew ten thirty two. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I don't know if you caught it a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Mike dropped some convicting wisdom. ...on us in the, the Blessed are the Persecuted sermon. We're going through that sermon, and I, like many of you, are probably thinking, oh, ...but I'm a Christian, and I'm really not all that persecuted very much. And then Mike dropped the hammer and pointed out, ...hey, maybe that's because we only really act like Christians inside these four walls on Sunday mornings. Maybe it's because no one out there in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, or in our homes, ...even really knows that we're a Christian... Maybe we're not being persecuted because no one even knows that we profess to be believers. Are we acknowledging Christ before men? Are we loving the glory that comes from God more than comes from man? Another wise man, John Calvin, uh, can anything be more foolish? Or Or rather, can anything be more beastly than to prefer the silly applauses of men? to the judgment of God. And listen, I believe that it is this, in large part, that explains why so many of us are so little transformed by the sight of the all-glorious Christ. It's because, again, I, I'm, I'm talking to myself. I'm speaking from experience here. It's because many of us are still so fixed and focused on the glory of man, which is ultimately to be fixed and focused on the glory of Me. As we seek to receive the glory that comes from man. Look at me. Recognize me. Follow me. Give me likes. Affirm me. Praise me. Glory. So much of what we think and say and do is motivated by this sinful self-focus. And this desire for our own glory. So much more of it than we would like to admit. And it is this focus on the glory of man, of self that blinds us to the true and transforming glory of God. This means that we're still learning and struggling to really see Christ for who He is, as He is so good and gracious and glorious. And we prove that we're still struggling to see that when we look for glory anywhere else but Him. These men did not savingly believe into Jesus. They did not forsaking all, I take Him, so 42 and 43 cannot be saving faith. But let me, we do know that at least it seems that that's not the end for all of them. If, if all we had were those two verses, and if it stayed there in that faith, well, it's not living saving faith. But for some of them, maybe this was at least the beginnings of faith. Maybe this was the stirring that would eventually result in saving faith as it seems to have possibly been for Joseph and Nicodemus, as we see them in chapter 19 coming out, coming for Christ's body, identifying themselves with Christ, confessing Him before men, literally taking Him. So again, I think maybe that, that's indication that the faith was coming and beginning and growing for some of them, but just in 42 and 43, that is not saving. And so the question for all of us is, have we turned from self and sin to the glory of man, Uh, from self and sin and the glory of man to Christ and grace and the glory of God? How can we tell? Are we becoming a little bit more like him? Ever so slowly, for some of us, for myself. Those fruit of the Spirit, those are there for a reason. The the fruit of the Spirit, that's Jesus. Jesus. That's, that's who God is, and that's what he's like. We are being transformed into his image, and as we are, those, those fruit, those character qualities start to develop. Are we growing in our love for him and our knowledge of him? Are we pursuing him? Have we seen the beauty of holiness? Are we increasingly uh, pursuing that and increasingly desiring to obey him? Are we growing in just our, our happiness and our contentment and our joy in the Lord? Is our life in any way oriented around him or about him? I think it's pretty simple. It shouldn't be controversial. We don't have any right to claim to know Christ if our life is in no way a reflection of Christ. You know, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm not saying anything perfection. It's a relationship of, of contact and communion that changes and transforms us. There are a lot of people who think they're saved, but aren't because they've been taught that faith is little more than believing some facts about Jesus, praying some prayer, so that they can go and get on with their life and and seek the glory that comes from man. No, faith is so much more. Because Christ is so much more. Faith is the whole soul trust in the all-glorious Christ that affects the whole of your life. J.C. Ryle encouraged us saying we can never trust him too much. We can never follow him too closely. We can never commune with him too unreservedly. This is what faith does as it sees how glorious Christ is. It wants him above all else. Believe. Point number three. Quickly. I'll be brief here on the last one. Why? Why must you believe? I almost titled this point, What are the stakes? Like what's you know, what's what's on the line here? What are what are the stakes or, or why must you believe? Go back to the text. We have forty seven and forty-eight. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge, the word that I have spoken. We'll judge him on the last day. When I preached back on John 3, 17 through 21, the, my first two points were, God did not send his son to judge the world. God sent his son to judge the world. Those are my first two points. We have something similar here. Jesus did not come to judge. Jesus came to save. The point is, the purpose of his first coming is first and foremost salvation. But... The logical result of the rejection of that salvation will be judgment. Plus, he's coming again. And he's coming as judge. This is why you must believe, because he is the judge. Judges have the authority and the right to pass judgment. John 5 is all about Jesus as judge. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Catch verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So our verse again, verse 48 from 12, is the same thing. It's so important. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last The word judge in Greek, krino, it just means to separate. to, to, To separate in the sense of to distinguish, to divide, to decide. It's to make a distinction, a choice between two things. And to do so, to judge justly, there must be a standard by which to judge. And Jesus tells us very clearly here what that standard of judgment is. It's his word. We should pay attention to this. It is big that Jesus says that it is His Word that will judge us on the last day. Why is that so important? What, what is this Word? Well, we've talked about this a lot. Remember, words words reveal and relate. We've already seen that He is the Word. He's the one who reveals and relates God to us and He does so through His words. 663, His words that are spirit and life. His words that reveal His gospel. Gospel just means good news. News consists of of words, an announcement of something that has happened. And these words reveal to us ultimately the God of unimaginable glory and grace. A God rejected and rebelled against. A God opposed and offended. Romans 1. We all of us knew God. But we refused to acknowledge Him as such, refused to give Him uh, thanks. We exchanged His immortal, infinite glory for the pitiful glory of created things of ourselves. We made ourselves His enemies. We set ourselves against Him. We sought to kill Him and be Him. But God, but grace, these words, are revealing to us the all sovereign, all glorious God of all power coming to get us, coming for his enemies, the ones who wanted nothing to do with him in all his goodness and beauty. We had treated it as worthless, as nothing. He came for us in Christ to take on the sin that was cosmic rebellion against him, to take on the death that the rejection of the God of life deserves and demands, he came and took all that and died. God in Christ died for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, his enemies. And then being God so glorious and good, death could not hold him, he rose again, defeating death itself. And he lives right now, ruling and reigning and interceding and mediating for us. He for preposition. He for us. That's what this whole word is all about. This God revealed in His word the goodness and grace and kindness and compassion of God. But when you reject that, what do you expect? No to all that love and goodness and grace? What what do we expect? We just saw an uncomfortably graphic illustration of this in Deuteronomy chapter 1 on Thursday. Remember, God's brought Israel out of Egypt. And what He's done for them is amazing. Nothing like it has ever happened. He has revealed Himself as clearly and powerfully and as lovingly as possible. Ten plagues demonstrating His infinite power over the false gods of Egypt. He's divided the very Red Sea and then defeated Israel's enemies in that very same sea. He has gone before them visibly in the pillar of cloud and fire. He has fed them supernaturally with manna and quail from the heavens. He has watered them supernaturally from a rock in the middle of a desert. And most amazingly, he has been with them. God himself, present with his people. What power, what glory, what love. And how evident and clear and undeniable... But then they came to the land. And they saw the greatness of the people in the land. They saw the greatness of the walls surrounding the cities of the land. And they cry out in Deuteronomy 1.27, Because the Lord has hated us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. The greatest demonstration of God's love twisted into a demonstration of hatred. The very act by which he delivered his people attacked as an attempt to destroy his people. What do we expect? What do you expect when you reject such love and grace? That's what his word is revealing. Here's how good I am. Here's my grace, come to me and live. When we reject such love, Only judgment is left. And these are the stakes. This is why you must believe. God doesn't invite us to believe. He commands us to believe. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance, God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. See, the Bible repeatedly makes it clear that there is an end coming to all of this. First Corinthians 731, the present form of this world is passing away. There is an end, and that end is judgment. We should constantly live in light of that day. Birthdays, holidays, paydays, vacation days, Saturdays, all are days that we pay much attention to, and we shape our lives around them none of them should compare to this day, the last day, the judgment day, as the day that we should pay attention to and shape our lives around. J.C. Ryle says, let the thought of judgment have a practical effect on our faith. Let us daily judge ourselves that we may not be judged and condemned by the Lord. Let us pay attention to our hourly conduct. Never forget That for every idle word, we must give an account at the last day. In a word, let us live like those who believe in the truth of judgment, heaven, and hell. He who believes that he must give account to the judge at his appearing will never be content with an ungodly life. He will say, there is a judgment. I can never serve God too much. Christ died for me. I can never do too much for him. These are helpful words. There is a judgment. I can never serve God too much. Christ died for me. I can never do too much for him. And that is why you must believe. These are the stakes. We will all stand before him on that day. And we will either stand before him alone, or we will stand before him in Christ and with Christ Who is the judge, by the way? You will either stand before him on your own power and in your own goodness, good luck, or you will stand before him clothed in his own righteousness. Clothed in the very righteousness of the judge himself. Verse 50. And so I know that his commandment is eternal life. So that's what is offered to you freely in Christ. If only you will come to him and believe. That's why you must believe, because the only way to live is to believe in the Christ who is life. There's nothing more important than knowing Him rightly, trusting Him completely, loving Him unreservedly, and living eternally. He is the Word of life, and He tells us that the judgment to come will be based on His words of life. What have you done with Jesus? What are you doing? With His words. Have you seen Him as glorious and gracious and good? How central is He in your thinking, your loving, and your living? All John is trying to do here is to draw our attention to the all-glorious Christ who is life. And I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Look to Christ And live. He is everything and He is worth our everything. So let us close now in a word of prayer. Father, help us to do now what we cannot in our own power. Father, by your Spirit, take these words. Have hindered or made it more difficult to see the glory and the grace of Christ. Have been able to set those words aside. Bring your Christ and your word out front and center and show us him. Speak to us through him. Reveal his glory and his grace to us, Lord. And fix our attention on Jesus Christ. Father, I want my life to more and more reflect the eternal glory and grace and beauty of this, this Christ. I want that for the family. and for the church family. Father, um, we need your help. We pray that you would do it by showing us how good and gracious we find it in this Christ is. Father, we do We want to love you, Lord. We want the glory that comes for you. Forgive us and protect us from pursuing the glory that comes for you. Father, make our lives entirely without Jesus Christ. We ask you we pray this all.